Hello and welcome to The Ballpark, a podcast from the U.S. Center here at the London School of Economics. Each episode, we bring you new and innovative academic research to help you go beyond the headlines. I'm Denise Barron, and in this episode, we're talking politics. If you're a keen follower of American political journalism, then you're very familiar with hot takes. If you're not, a hot take is basically a piece of commentary that's meant to be very current, a bit provocative, but the level of insight can really vary. How Donald Trump gets away with saying things other candidates can't. Romney's Trump speech may have actually increased support for Trump. How Donald Trump broke the media. The real winner of the Democratic debate, President Obama. When will Trump fire Trump? That's Chris Gilson and Sophie Donzelman, my co-hosts and members of the team here at the LSE's U.S. Center. So this episode is our antidote to the hot takes that lack a broader perspective, to put it diplomatically. First, we'll start out with a bit of historical context from Mona Morgan Collins, a fellow in LSE's government department. She'll tell us about her research on voting patterns, specifically the first election year that welcomed women into the democratic process. And then we'll hear about a new political theory on polarization from James Snyder, a Harvard professor who recently visited the LSE. We'll throw both of these topics out for discussion, but it's not all facts and figures today at the ballpark. We'll have a few laughs too, or at least we'll share some jokes and chuckles from a political comedy night here in London for a little comedic view of U.S. politics. Okay, let's get started. So the year is 1920. Woodrow Wilson is president. The Cleveland Indians beat the Brooklyn Dodgers in the World Series. And with the passage of the 19th Amendment, women had won the right to vote, meaning most women are enfranchised for the first time. That's Mona Morgan Collins. She's a fellow at the LSE in government. And her research focuses on voting patterns, especially of women, as well as the effects of uh, suffrage on political outcomes. Specifically, I was looking at how women voted when they were enfranchised. So yes, it's basically examining voting gender gap back in history. So the 1920 election. Here are the basics. Woodrow Wilson, a Democrat, isn't running for a third term. And so it's Warren G. Harding for the Republicans running against James Cox, a Democrat. Side note and fun fact, Cox's running mate was none other than budding political star Franklin Delano Roosevelt. It's, that's neither here nor there, it's just interesting. But in the 1920 elections, in most, vast majority of the women votes for the first time in the general elections, um, even more so for the congressional elections. And this election was in many ways a referendum on Woodrow Wilson's presidency. He had been in office for about eight years at that point, including World War I. The 1920 elections is the first election after the war, and there's this massive uh, public call for change after the war. Voters were angry, and they were critical of Wilson's choices to enter the war and then engage with the League of Nations. The economy was lagging after the war, so there were moderate expectations that Wilson's party, the Democrats, would lose the White House to Harding and the Republicans. But somehow researchers did not connect that necessarily to the fact that at the same time, you have all this, you know, basically half of the population in most states enfranchised. All right, so what happened in the election? It was a massive landslide. Harding and the Republicans won big. What was quite surprising is that it was a much larger landslide than was even thought or predicted or expected. But why? Where did this unexpected flood of Republican voters come from? Well, Mona says, what about the women? 
She argues that women can account for a significant portion of those unexpected Republican votes. But if that's the case, previous research on the voting habits of women is, well, wrong. Much of the existing research on how women voted before the 1980s or so assumes that the voting patterns of women were not necessarily different from those of men because women were generally voting the same way as their husbands. And it struck me as something quite counterintuitive thing that prior to that, women would not be voting as women, that neither party would be trying to appeal to specific preferences that they were thinking would be appealing to women. I simply did not believe that. I said, okay, if we think that women voted as their husbands prior to that time, let's examine the data again and let's think about, you know, whether at the time of suffrage actually women supported the party that they thought would have been representing their preferences the best. So that's the contradiction in the literature that sparked my interests. So Mona set out to analyze this election and find out if women did indeed vote differently from men and therefore contribute to the landslide victory for the Republicans. But remember, this is really before polling, so she can't use polling data to aid her analysis. So how did Mona study this? So in terms of the methodology, um, again, as I have mentioned, there is very little uh, survey data. Basically, the Gallup poll starts from the 1930s onwards. So you've got in the 1920s, you've got a few straw polls, but they're not representative. This is basically you can't use them. So I think, again, that's something that contributed to the fact that we um, simply thought that there was not much happening, um, uh, that women simply voted as their husbands at this point. Since there's no polling, Mona focused on the actual election data from the states, as well as the smaller divisions of counties within the state. The counties are especially important because you could compare election results of each county with the ratio of men and women in any given county, which in the 1920s varied widely. So the idea is that there would be some uh, states or counties that would have disproportionately less women. Think of mining towns. Think of things of towns which were attracting uh, immigrants that were mainly male. You know, uh, even today you would call, let's say, Denver, Manver, because there's more men. So, you know, all these things you could see today, but they were particularly pronounced at the time period that I study. And I can explain that, because where there is more women in the counties, then we should see a larger increase in the proportion of the votes that goes to the Republican candidates, right? Whereas when there's less women, then obviously if women vote Republican more than men, then you should see less so of the Republican effect. And did the data confirm her suspicions? Did it show that women were a big part of the 1920 Republican landslide? Yeah, I think the most significant finding is that women did contribute to the Republican victory in the 1920 elections. And in the broader picture, it really confirms the contemporary expectations that women were linked and more likely to support Republican Party for all those reasons um, that we would perhaps today even call, you know, liberal or progressive uh, on many levels. Okay, so let's pause for a second. This seems like a good time to mention that the Republican Party of 1920 is remarkably different from the Republican Party we know today. Absolutely, absolutely. I mean, what, what I, I almost, when I started doing this research, I almost laughed out loud when I realized that all of those feminists who today would be aligning with the Democrats, they would be Republican at that time. The Republican Party of the 1920s was downright progressive in many ways. The party, the Republican Party in the 1920s or even prior to that, is simply not the party that we know today. This was the party of Lincoln. This was the party of the abolitionists and the anti-slavery movement. Remember, the Civil War had only ended about 50 years earlier, and the party of the South at the time was the Democratic Party. The Republicans also were slightly more in favor of women's suffrage than Democrats. These are progressive positions, although 
not necessarily economically progressive, but socially for sure. Yes, maybe economically, you know, you could sort of say that Republicans were more conservative, the platform overall. But at the same time, it is simply wrong, in my opinion, to call the party conservative in the same way that we would call it today. So the political spectrum from liberal to conservative was basically flipped from how we see it today. But what similarities do we see? What comparisons can we draw from the 20s to now? I actually feel that there is much more similarity between women's vote in the 1920s and between what we see today and from the 1980s forward. It is both, it's, it's almost like a, you have this shock of uh, feminist wave. Feminist wave 1960s, 1970s, and from 1980s onwards, women vote for the Democratic candidates based on those, you know, progressive um, um, uh, liberal agendas. And in the 1920s, something similar might have happened. You have that shock of suffrage which mobilizes these women. Um, and even things such as the, one of the most um, important women's organizations at the time, the Women's Christian Temperance Union. Now, pay attention to this. This is Women's Christian Temperance Union. So, yes, they're for prohibition. But they are also for a bunch of other progressive measures. And they're also for suffrage because they want to use the suffrage as a means for women's uh, representation and their their, their progressive and prohibitionist agendas. Now, you might be thinking that contemporary conservative women don't fit this narrative. Well, Mona has heard that critique before. Anytime I presented this research, there were always people in the audience, or, you know, I frequently hear it all the time, but look at the women in the Tea Party. Look at the examples of powerful women in the Republican conservative camp. And, you know, these are always, exam you know, this is always an evidence by example. Yes, there are some women. I'm not claiming that all women you know, vote certain way. I'm always looking at tendencies and basically comparing averages and finding that there is a gender gap, that there are different tendencies within those camps. So, yes, there will always be women, you know, in the Republican camp, um, but most of them, both at the congressional level or even at the voters' level, would be leaning towards the Democratic Party. And this goes back to one of Mona's main points. The voting patterns of women are and have been different from men since women won suffrage. We can't assume a broad trend of women voting like their husbands, even in 1920. Politicians knew something that political science is found out only basically now. <laughs> um, and that is that, you know, we thought that um, parties did not, or a lot of the research thought that parties did not appeal to women um, as, um, and their specific preferences, let's say, prior to the 1980s. But actually, Mona says that we see evidence of the party's efforts to appeal to women all the way back in 1920. Parties have always been appealing to women, have always been trying to figure out how women will vote, and those expectations influence their decisions whether to enfranchise women or not. Because if they knew that women were voting, let's say, on prohibition, then they were either, if they were for prohibition, then they might want to enfranchise women. If they were against prohibition, they might not. Basically, Mona's research helps us understand the history of political pandering. But in all seriousness, her, her analysis tells us something very important, that even in 1920, we can observe different voting patterns between women and men. Now, this is something we'll come back to in the discussion. Okay, next up, we wade into the realm of political philosophy or political theory to tackle a very real issue in American politics, polarization. Every election season, you hear that Democrats and Republicans are battling for those people in the middle. You would think that parties would pick moderate and centrist positions in order to win the battle for those middle-of-the-road voters. In, in fact, it turns out that it seems like it's much more like the opposite. 
That's Jim Snyder, a professor of history and political science at Harvard University. He stopped by the LSE recently, and when we caught up with him, Jim laid out a theory he's been working on with Matthias Polborn, an economist from the University of Illinois. And this theory proposes one reason why the political landscape in the U.S. is so polarized, why Democrats and Republicans could be, in fact, moving farther apart. So let's start out with the distance between the parties. Today it's called polarization. In the past it was just called inter-party divergence or between-party divergence or divergence of platforms. Why do parties take different positions in electoral politics? You might be especially aware of this growing distance between Democrats and Republicans because we have Republicans like Ted Cruz and Democrats like Bernie Sanders making headlines that are infused with their very distinct positions right now. But this phenomenon is happening at every level of American politics, in U.S. Senate and congressional races, in state legislatures, you name it. So what's driving this? So that's the general uh, question. What, what are the forces that are causing the parties to pull apart? And out there in the literature, there's a couple that are standard. One is, oh well, the parties just have, a con- they, they consist of politicians, or donors, or um, activists who have very strong policy preferences, and they're not willing to compromise on those policy preferences. Basically, this particular theory says that the extreme sides of either party are unwilling to compromise, and that ends up pulling the parties in these divergent directions. Now, keep in mind, that's not Jim's theory. We'll get to his in a little bit. All right. At this point, you might be thinking, aren't parties motivated to pick moderate positions in order to pull those people in the middle over to their side? Aren't parties pushed at least to appear centrist and appeal to those coveted moderate voters instead of these extreme positions? Well, there are a number of significant theories out there that predict exactly that. So the forces that are causing the parties, say to pick moderate positions are, if they pick an extreme position, they're going to lose. With very high, if the other party picks a moderate position and you pick an extreme position, you're going to lose. Well, if, and that's as, as long as elections are quite predictable. You can predict that you're going to lose and you're not going to do that, so you're going to have to adopt a more moderate position. With a lot of electoral uncertainty out there, like a lot of voters kind of like voting on the basis of, I don't know, the economy or um, some other kind of shock or, or the... Um, you know, per, personal personalities of, of the candidates or something like this. If that's, if, if uncertainty is very high, then, well, it doesn't really matter what position you take. You're, you're kind of facing a kind of a coin flip in the election. So, heck, just adopt your policy, your favorite position, and hope for the best would be the, the equilibrium. While a move to the middle theoretically makes sense, it turns out that theory only applies when elections are pretty predictable which is not what we're seeing going on right now. So what does it mean for an election to be, quote, predictable? Let's dive into this idea of electoral predictability or uncertainty a little bit more. You can construct measures of how uncertain elections are by, say, taking, for each state, you have like a lot of different elected offices. Um, and you have multiple elections. You have like the election 1986, 88, 90. And in some of those elections, like there was a governor election, senator election, elections also at the state level for things like attorney general, secretary of state, state treasurer. There's a lot of elected positions in the U.S., way more than most other countries. France, I think, is the closest. In, in the old days, you would have a lot of just straight party line voting, like everybody gets 62% of the vote. Nowadays, there's a lot of like split ticket voting, a lot of more other stuff apparently going on. 
A lot of that has to do with, uh, well, we don't know, but things like incumbency, but also other characteristics of the candidates running. Sometimes parties just, they've got a really good candidate for attorney general. Like he was the assistant attorney general and uh, has very qualified and he's a great speaker, whatever, whatever, and, and wins despite the fact that almost all the other offices went the other way. So this is a kind of electoral uncertainty where you as a candidate or you as a party don't know if you're going to win or lose because there's a lot of split ticket voting happening and a lot of inter-election vote swings. And in, a, in, a, in an uncertain environment like that, this is where, well, heck, if you just have, you don't know what, you know, you don't really know what's going to happen. You don't know if taking a moderate position is going to help you that much. And so what's the point of taking a really moderate position? Unlike previous times, we see voters prioritizing personality, perhaps, over party. They're zigzagging between parties on their ballots. And on top of that, they change their minds quite a bit between election years. So if electoral uncertainty has increased over the last few decades, we can see how this undermines the theories that say parties should be tacking to the middle. But what else is going on here? Because any observer of American politics can see that instead of overlapping policy positions, we see the two parties as divided as ever on a number of issues, abortion, immigration, energy, even national security. So our model... Jim has been working with his co-author, Matthias Paul Warren, on a theory that proposes an additional force, uh, another factor in the increasing polarization, a force that's different from the basic policy preferences of a candidate. And what they came up with tells us a lot about the political geography of the U.S. So let's start out with a couple very basic ideas that you have to keep in mind for this theory. Number one, the U.S. is split up into districts, states, congressional districts, state senate districts, state house districts, and so on and so forth. Number two, these districts are represented by a single member in legislative bodies like the U.S. Senate, Congress, state legislatures, etc. And lastly, number three, you have to remember that the U.S. is functionally a two-party system. That's a key part of what makes this theory uniquely American and not necessarily applicable to the U.K. or the rest of Europe. All right, so given these factors... Then it's quite easy for a world to exist where one party is kind of a left party and the other party is kind of a right party. The left party wins the left districts, the districts that lean left, and the super left districts, it wins almost all of those, and it wins most of the moderate left districts. The right party wins all of the super far right districts and most of the medium right districts, and then almost or, you know, a large share of the center right districts. And then they split 50-50 some really super centrist districts, like, I don't know, some districts in the parts of Ohio or something. In this world, you end up with a bunch of incumbents who are from districts in which a conservative or liberal message is a really good message for them personally to win re-election. So that's the force that's going on here, which is, oh, why is it that a bunch of Republicans take very conservative positions, a bunch of Democrats take very liberal positions as individual candidates, as individual legislators, and when they talk on TV, on talk, talk shows, or when they propose bills, or when they roll call voting record, why they look clearly left or right? Well, because it fits their district quite well. Like, saying, oh, I want to dismantle Obamacare, isn't just saying maybe what they want. It's also simultaneously saying things that, they're, that a majority of their voters like and, in fact, would like to have happen, and so they're just representing a majority of their voters. So first of all, he's saying, we have this geography of different districts, and each of them includes constituencies that fall at various points in the political spectrum, from far left to far right, 
from Texas to California. And then the second thing is the people who have the biggest voice in determining what people, um, what voters take as the party messages are going to be precisely the incumbents. Mm -hmm. And probably even, it's not in our model, but probably even true, the more senior incumbents are going to probably have the, they're going to be committee chairs and speaker of the house and people who are on TV the most. Mm -hmm. and, and those people are going to be even from the safest districts. Mm -hmm. how, how, why? Well, because how do they get to be so senior in the first place? Well, because they could win elections over and over and over again. Ah, that's because they were in such safe districts that they could win over and over again. This is a very familiar story. So for example, let's take someone elected to office in a very Republican seat. They've beat out all of the other Republicans in a primary, and now they're in a really good position to beat the Democrats and hold that seat for years and years to come. The longer they're in that seat, the more opportunities they have to rise in the ranks, earn positions of power. Then, through those positions of power, a chairmanship on a committee or something like that, they have more opportunities to define the message and direction of their party. They have one of the biggest voices in the party at that point. But remember, they also have very right-wing constituents back home. So here's a crucial thing to keep in mind. So in our world, in the world of the model, politicians are greedy, uh, selfish, and care only about their own re-election. Our more cynical listeners are probably nodding their heads right now. But here's how this all comes to a head. The selfish politicians living in right-wing districts, say, would, want, would not want to muddy, to muddy the message up with a bunch of Republicans running in left-wing districts having really left-wing platforms and having that all over the TV. Because then it would, not, it would not be clear what the Republican message is anymore. You've got right-wing Republicans saying right-wing things. You've got left-wing Republicans saying left-wing things. What the heck? And the same in the Democratic Party. So you would see that, so the parties would want to work against that if, if they like this world where they, they, don't, they don't love this world, but it's like a second best world. The best world would be where we could be both moderate and conservative at the same time, or moderate and liberal at the same time, but we can't. So we take a second best world where, well, we're, we're, we're liberal, they're conservative, and this is great for the current set of incumbents. And it's too bad for the challengers, but you know what the heck. We're going to lose in those districts, we just give up. Mm -hmm. Because the, the alternative would be to muddy the message a huge amount. Muddy the message and potentially put their own re-election in jeopardy. They're not just motivated to keep the party message cohesive and clear for the sake of party unity. They want to keep their seat and their, quote, saved seat, which they've held for years and years where they have a reputation, where they have a voting record, it might not be so safe if the political landscape shifted. That, ah, this is the, thing, the key thing. Maybe this is the end. They're safe for the party as long as, these, as long as it's very clear that the Democrats are left and the Republicans are right. If the, if the platforms converged to the same thing, well, these people would not be safe anymore. So they have this tension. They would like, on the one hand, to make a moderate message to win nationwide, but that could cost them electorally themselves, so they're not so crazy about that if they first and foremost care about holding office themselves. So the biggest voices in each political party, they're actually motivated to maintain polarization in order to just keep their own jobs. Now remember, this is a political theory, so it's used by political scientists to make predictions. And Jim's theory, well, it, it predicts a number of things, but let's focus in on one of them. Their theory predicts that the more uncertainty there is in an election, the less polarization. 
For instance, the races that are often called toss-ups, where there's a lot of uncertainty, they are going to have candidates who are moving more to the middle. But on the other hand, elections that are relatively safe for one party or another are going to have more polarization. Not to get too technical here, but the data that they analyzed in developing this theory showed them a very clear negative correlation between electoral uncertainty and polarization. This seems to be very true in some state legislative data. If we had a picture, you could see it, like there's a graph, there's a scatter plot, and a, and, a, and a very nice, tight, negative correlation there. We found this for some data that's older from the 60s and then from the, for the, from the modern era. So how well does the model fit that particular prediction? Turns out it seems in the data, at least, that it does, that it does very well in the Democratic Party and not so well for Republicans. We don't really know why. Maybe because, of course, our model is just one of the forces, and then maybe inside the Republican Party, um, this ideology—you know—I don't know—personal ideology of, of people or activists or donors or something is more salient. So, in the quest to find answers as to why American politics are so polarized, this theory gets us part of the way there. So I'm here now with my two co-hosts for a discussion. We have Sophie Donselman and Chris Gilson. Starting out first with the uh, the interview with Mona Morgan Collins. Sophie, um, you and I sat down with her to, to do this interview. Now she mentioned in there that there's um, a bit of a difference in different regions of the country. So maybe you want to make a note on that. So Mona made a point to say that voters, female voters in the South had a different particular voting pattern than um, female voters in the rest of the country. And I thought that was an interesting point that she highlighted that there was difference in voting patterns, but also difference in voting access and the barriers that some of those women, particularly black women, faced um, when going to the poll booths. I think that's of particular relevance now when we consider the current voter ID laws that are constantly kind of cyclically being debated and whether those provide true barriers to voting, which many people say they do, many people say they target groups of the population unfairly, and the defense to that is um, that access remains the same. And I think, I don't want to infer too much, but I think um, Morgan Collins was making a similar point, that there are barriers that are perhaps seen or unseen that can affect voter access. Um, For me, the really interesting point was that the Republican Party has shifted so incredibly far over the past nearly 100 years. And if you look at the Republican Party now, they talk about sort of the, the war on women and stuff, and I can get to that a bit later. But there's this idea that you know women were kind of voting for the Republican Party and it was all the progressive ideals sort of started in the, in the late part of the 19th century, early 20th. I think it's just really fascinating seeing how far the parties have come and also seeing how different the discourses are around women uh, then as compared to now and, and also the idea of, of women as a, as, a, as a voting block that parties would attract themselves to too. Yeah, and that, that's, the, that's exactly the, the point that I really became interested in after doing that interview. I was thinking a lot about how I bristle at the phrase women's issues um, or as I like to call them, issues and that we, we've basically taken um, a half of the population and I think sometimes turn them into this smaller minority group. And the real danger of that, which I don't think that Morgan Collins is doing this in her research, but I'm saying the real danger of looking at uh, women as this offshoot is that then you're assuming the male perspective to be the default. 
and one way that I think that that really manifests itself in a nefarious way is when you see campaigns attempting to appeal to women by uh, using issues that I think are a bit more stereotypical and narrow in their scope, such as reproductive rights. Um, if you're if you're attempting to win over women in a state and your your only tactic to speak to them is just by talking about reproductive rights, you are missing all of the issues that are important to them. And there's actually an opportunity to approach any of those issues from a female perspective because what Mona's research shows us is that men and women vote differently. There, there have been gender differences ever since both genders were voting, and we see different patterns either way. It's okay to recognize the differences, but it's very dangerous to appeal to either one through stereotypes. I have to say I completely agree with you on that, Denise, but I do think that women are in a difficult position that if we neglect or we leave the lobbying on those issues, um, women's issues, whatever that means, but um, the right to choose and health care, particularly for women, um, if we neglect to fight for that, then I think we're kind of the only advocates who will, and if right, we don't right. fight, who will? I think, speaking as a man, obviously, it's interesting that's sort a of discourse because certainly political messaging, men, I don't think, get messaged about women's issues, even mm. though a lot of us are married or have daughters and mm. sisters and things. And I think one of the interesting challenges is how to sort of get men to get going to actually sort these issues out because at the moment we tend to have most of the power in society and that's not just mm -hmm. in the US, it's here as well mm -hmm. and so I think an interesting thing to look for in terms of messaging in, in the future I guess from the, from the left we how, how are we encouraging men to fight for equal pay to treat people equally and to sort of a, a address these really deep down structural sort of issues that have been going for for decades, for the most part, men are just concerned about inequality and getting ahead and, mm -hmm. and, I guess, providing for their families, in quotation marks, but that still comes from a very patriarchal and outdated. and outdated point of view. And so it's kind of changing that narrative to how do we just make sure everyone is benefiting yeah. and making sure that we, we men check our privilege and, and all that sort of stuff. I did want to add one point to our conversation. I think it's very important that we discuss voting patterns of women, but then again, we also need to develop the conversation on who we're talking about when we talk about women. And I think we're still kind of lagging behind that we see women as very cisgendered people who are born with women genitalia um, and just kind of the traditional view of women when now, as we all know, that's changing and people like can identify as women, people are transitioning to different genders. And I think um, acknowledge that we need to take baby steps but I do think it's important that we keep that on our agenda as well. Yeah, and that even ties into the, the need to recognize that uh, women of color face mm. a completely different set of challenges than white women, than exactly. white men, than men of color. As Chris was saying, it's about privilege and mm -hmm. checking that. So, All right, so moving on to the political theory that was uh, presented to us by Jim Snyder. Uh, Chris, you and I sat down with Jim to talk about this. Tell me a little bit about your reaction to that theory. Well, my reaction was kind of colored by my work on the USAP blog here at the center. So I, the last three years, I've been doing a political blog roundup where I kind of go through and read all manner of left-wing, moderate, right, very far-right blogs and commentary. And his point, as far as I understand it, was that the candidates that are in far-right districts or extreme districts tack to extreme views they stay in, they stay longer, 
and then they become uh, congressional leaders. I think that, that, was, that was what I was saying. Mm-hmm. Um, and so if you look at people like John Boehner, the, the speaker who was booted out in October last year, and to a lesser extent a successor, Paul Ryan, and some of the other congressional leaders, while they m- may be coming from relatively extreme districts, the perception in their party is that they're not extreme. So John Boehner for a long time was called a squish because he was willing to not shut down the government in, uh, in 2014 and was willing to kind of compromise to what the Democrats would have thought would be a tiny, tiny extent. Or even but just sit in the same room as Obama. Room. Yeah, but the, the people on the right of the party said, it's, you know, he's giving away the farm. So I think that's an indication of just how polarized things are get, getting. And so you look at someone like Eric Cantor, who was in, I think, Virginia, and he was primaried in the 2014 cycle really surprisingly uh, and just uh, and was kicked out. Uh, because and lost his seat to someone coming seat. from the far right. Yeah, and he, uh, yeah, he was just seen as his being far too much of a Washington insider. So I think it's an interesting perspective. Uh, yeah, and, and, and Snyder mentioned when we spoke with him that the his theory plays out well with Democrats, but not so much with Republicans, because he and he emphasized that the, this theory aimed to identify one element, one force of polarization, not necessarily explain the whole big shebang. But you point out that the people who are leaders in the Republican Party right now are coming from safe seats, and therefore, from his perspective, are more likely to be the far right and kind of the the message directors but what you're saying is that particularly from the far right of the uh the republicans that there's a tea party that doesn't recognize these people as being truly conservative we have the whole house freedom caucus so sort of we don't even know how many people are in the house freedom caucus which is kind of interesting too you know sort of these 10 15 20 uh members of the house who just basically say no to everything and if you aren't one of them you're essentially a communist. It's, mm-hmm. it's incredible. Right. I think what's important, as you've both hinted at, is kind of normative implications of this theory, that when we have the word bipartisan become such a toxic term, it really hurts any progress in government. And I don't really know where we can go from here. It seems like, as Snyder was suggesting, we're not turning the tide anytime soon. And it's actually kind of scary to think how this can get any worse. Do you guys think that bipartisanship is as much of a nasty word on the left as it is to the right? I just don't get the sense that it's it's as much of a nasty word on the left as it is on the right. I think, like you're saying, on the right, it doesn't even have to be bipartisanship, which is working together. Um, we saw John Huntsman, who ran for president. He lost out to Romney. He was appointed by Obama to be ambassador to China. And that appointment alone, that partisan tie, was enough to get him dismissed as too much of you said, like a, a squish. I think I, I think I've got my finger on it. So bipartisanship is better on the Democratic side because bipartisanship only exists with people who want to be bipartisan with you. Hmm. So the Democrats aren't worried about being bipartisan with the House Freedom Caucus because it's not it's not a caucus because it's not on the table. So the bipartisanship is between people like Paul Ryan and Patty Murray, who did the the budget a few years ago, uh, and it's 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 was on the right because you have that much more polarization to the right well that's the perception that's what I seem to see and everything's moving farther right there's that the punishment for any perceived bipartisanship is huge whereas I think the equivalent left like the Warren Sanders side wouldn't necessarily punish someone who's more centrist for being bipartisan with John Boehner and I think if they managed to be bipartisan with the House Freedom Caucus I don't I don't think they could so it's kind of an odd 
it's, you just, it just doesn't exist, that kind of Yeah, I, I, don't, I don't see the left punishing uh, the leaders of the party for even just sitting in the same mm. room as someone mm. else. You know, there, there isn't that sense that simply talking to someone else is a betrayal of your ideology or of your party. While from the far right, there is a sense that like, even just photos of someone going to the White House to talk about national security threats, to talk about, you know, new, the new Supreme Court nominee, like all of these things that are just very basic conversations, they're not coming out there with results, just going there to talk to them is tainting them enough. Mm. Yeah. Or Chris Christie hugging, hugging in gradation exactly. like Obama after Hurricane Sandy. Yeah. All right. Well, I guess we'll see how this all plays out. Those on the those on the far right clearly don't see political compromise as a laughing matter, but hopefully we have a couple things in our next section to make you laugh. One thing before we move on though is that we want you to join our discussion on Twitter. Follow and tweet at us at lse underscore ballpark think we're right, think we're wrong, have a hot take you want us to share, join our discussion at LSE underscore ballpark. Okay, so next up, a little levity. My co-host Chris and I had the pleasure of stopping by a comedy night in London a little while ago. Well, it was more like a combination of a debate watch party and stand-up comedy. Perfect for those of us who equally enjoy political commentary and laughing. It was Eric McElroy's imperfect guide to the U.S. presidential debates. The MC is Eric McElroy. He's the guy with the American accent, and three comics joined him. Ola, who is actually an LSE alum, Robin Perkins, and Josie Long. So let's jump right in. At this point in the show, they're talking about none other than Donald Trump. The problem is he is funny more times than he's anything else. And it is, I mean, it's, I've never seen anyone run for president that's more, it's just about them and their characters, about who, who hurts his feelings, whether he's going to run, his poll numbers. That's all that matters to us. Of course. And that's, that's more of a reflection of us than it is of him. Because you have to remember, he's been around for a while, and he's like floated the idea before and he sort of, I think at one point he did start an exploratory running campaign thing and I guess we were still more like let's clean up after Bush kind of thing, we were more in like a serious place. Now I think we just, we are that, that group of people that wants to see the, the entertainment, we want to see a show. Mm. He's given us a show. Look how dejected they are, they're all silent now, you told them they're going to be on. Like, <laughs> now when did we come? You know, like, it, it kind of kills it for people. and. Uh, and I think I think the media knows it. I think I think he knows it, and mm. just keeps giving us show. Yeah, because all he talks about is fact. Well, the Fox News only cares about the money, which might. Be, I mean, the thing is, what's amazing is he does kind of. He, he does like Mitt Romney was not lost a lot of credibility because he was the billionaire and everything else. Where, but then Trump goes on and goes, "I am a billionaire, and I just buy these people left and right." And people are like, "Yeah, that makes sense." Yeah. It's amazing <laughs> difference just being that honest all the time. Indeed, but um, yeah, but the, the, that's the thing. Mitt Romney messed up because he tried to. He tried to act folksy, like he, yeah. he like he, like his roll is his uh, his cuffs up, but they'd be like too even. It just looked like you'd never rolled your cuffs up before. <laughs> Why are you trying to do this? And and he was just weird as well. He had like loads of kids, and most Americans were just like, "What's wrong with you? Like, why are you trying to be what you're not?" Whereas Donald Trump, you just at least get the sense that he really believes what he says. 
even if you don't agree with it, you know. And I think it's Chris Rock that said there's power can smell bullshit. Mm. <laughs> I don't know whether I agree with you that he seems to believe what he says. I feel I don't feel like he completely believes what he says. I feel like he's there's always you know his face was kind of like smirking and sneering. Exactly. I always feel like there's a bit of that with anything. I always feel sometimes when I hear him he's like he's going can you believe I just said that? <laughs> and he doesn't even really believe it, you know? Oh, I think I think if you do that long enough, that becomes who you are. And yeah, that's true. I think he, he is that person that's like, well, I think I've said something about the uh, Mexicans, blacks, women, disabled people, um, and he's just like sitting there thinking like, what's gonna really spark off next? And, and I think... And I also have no doubt that he would still, if he got into power, Well, you heard what he said, though, about how he was, uh, he could shoot somebody on Fifth Avenue and not lose any support. Like, he said that out loud. Like, <laughs> and then he said, I was joking. <laughs> <laughs> and skipping ahead a little more. And he's like, give me, and he's obviously like campaigning, and she's getting off, off of the campaign van, and he's like, give me a hug. And she's like, like give her away. She's like, like flicking his head. And he's like, no, no, give her a hug. And she's literally going, ow, ow. That's his daughter. Can I just ask one thing about Ted Cruz, because it's more factual, and I've never checked it out myself. Okay. I probably should have Googled it. But how is he, um, how is he able to run for president? I thought he had to be like, born in America oh. and so on. Can uh, but just kind of do it? He, he did revoke his Canadian citizenship, but the question sure is, uh, is he a natural-born citizen? This is a question that's never been tested in the Constitution yet, because being born in Canada, the, the, generally every president has been born in America. Yeah. So are you, the question is, which has not been decided, if having just an American parent makes you natural-born, or if you're American and then you become, uh, you, know, you, you have a right to become an American, but you're not natural-born, what that means. And there's loads of controversy yeah. on that. So it is a risk for him being elected, and Trump's been hitting it hard on that. If you want to hear more, check out our extra innings from the ballpark. We'll release the full discussion from this group following this podcast, so stay tuned. A big, big thank you to Eric McElroy for letting us stop by, and also a big thanks to all three comics, Ola, Robin Perkins, and Josie Long. All right, now we're moving on to a segment we like to call I Predict a Riot, where you get a taste of our predictions and prognostications for the future of any of these elements, really. Cool. Well, I'm going to go first and, and possibly risk making a, a political hot take, uh, going against the, the very name of this particular podcast. So at the time of taping this, there's a lot of discussion about will there be a contested GOP convention? What's going to happen? My prediction is there won't be. My prediction is that if, and I think you probably will, Donald Trump enters the convention with a plurality of voters. The other candidates will fall in behind him, and there won't be. A, there might be a small amount of horse trading, but it will be fairly straightforward. Uh, as a plurality, he will he will say he's the winner, and people will just go behind him because they will want the party to seem united, so that they don't get completely trampled by Hillary's uh, Hillary Clinton's accusations of being disunited uh, at the general election. 
So no, no bloodbath at the convention. All right, so my prediction also relates to the, the, the theme of the show on hot takes. And I, uh, I guess it's because I see hot takes as something that's growing out of punditry. Uh, we've often had news very separated from commentary, and the two are becoming more and more fused. And now that that's why we have a lot of journalists who are doing a lot of interesting reporting, investigative reporting. They're on the ground. They're on the, the trail with all these people. But now they're producing these hot takes that are their attempt to predict what's going to happen next. Well, here's my prediction along those lines. We're not going to see any shortage of those going forward. And I think, in fact, we'll see more and more of a blending, even this election cycle, more and more of a blending of commentary and news. Hot takes are here to stay. Hot takes are here to stay. They're not getting cold. <laughs> Lastly, Sophie? So my prediction relates to something interesting we saw not too long ago. It was a New York Times article that said Elizabeth Warren had endorsed Bernie Sanders for president. It turned out that this wasn't actually a New York Times article. This was a website that had been formatted to look like a New York Times article. But the article went viral, and it caused a lot of people to wonder why Elizabeth Warren hasn't endorsed anyone yet, who she will eventually endorse, and the power that this endorsement will have. So my prediction is that we will see um, her endorse one of the candidates sometime soon, and it will, not to be too dramatic, but it might make or break their campaign. High stakes. High stakes. All right, it's time to wrap up this episode of The Ballpark. I'd like to thank my co-hosts Sophie Donzelman and Chris Gilson and our interviewees Mona Morgan-Collins and James Snyder. The Ballpark is produced by Denise Barron, that's me, with contributions from co-hosts Chris Gilson and Sophie Donzelman, and also with help from the LSE's Hi-Fi Bid Fund and the U.S. Embassy. Our theme tune is by Ranger and the Rear Rangers, a Seattle-based gypsy jazz band. Look them up at rangerswings.com. We love them. And we'd love to know what you think about the show. Let us know on Twitter at LSE underscore ballpark. That's at LSE underscore ballpark. The content and opinions expressed in this podcast do not reflect those of the U.S. Center or the London School of Economics. Be sure to tune in next time when we'll be talking about foreign policy and American power. Well, as Yogi Berra would say, it ain't over till it's over. And now it's over. Thanks for listening. That's it. Cool.